San Francisco currently ranks 63rd last out of 63 U.S. cities uh, regarding downtown recovery. And because we're last, a lot of people have given many different suggestions on how to restore our city. Leaders have suggested soccer stadiums. People have suggested a, building a university or building an extension of a university in a downtown. Even people have just suggested putting a Legoland in the mall uh, that Westfield has left. Recently, APEC gave us a small glimpse of what clean and safe streets, at least in the barriers, would look like if there's a strong application of political will and resources applied. But after the conference left, barriers came down, law enforcement goes back to status quo. It seems to go back to the way it is. What will it take to restore San Francisco's downtown? As I've read about the various different attempts to restore the city, I cannot help but think of the parallel to our lives. Our lives often reflect the condition of San Francisco, if we're honest. It's broken, out of order, in need of significant help, not functioning the way it's supposed to be. And so we try and throw resources at it. We sometimes experience small victories, but lasting change often is very difficult. Maybe we find ourselves in a once-in-a-lifetime situation that causes significant cleanup, like marriage or having a child. But once life settles back into normal rhythms, small, the same issues just creep back in. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that real restoration and renewal is possible because it's not attempted from the effort from our own will and abilities. It's a supernatural work from the outside that comes into our life and brings real restoration. He comes in clearing out what's killing us. He, he brings out what is good in us and he makes us completely new. And it's not done by our grit or our good works. We didn't earn it. This is all a gift of grace where God comes in to bring restoration in our lives. And that's what Paul is focusing on here at the end of his letter. Restoration. Paul wants us to understand where real renewal and restoration comes from. I'm going to ask and answer two questions to help us understand this work of restoration that comes from God. How do we get it and what is the, what's the key to it? And then where do we see it at work in our lives? How do we get it? How do we get restoration? We see that in verses 1 to 4. And he actually comes back to a theme that he's been hammering again and again near the end of this letter. And he kind of repeats himself. And I think it's important that if he keeps repeating himself, this must be a crucial understanding for the Christian life and a crucial key for restoration. And we get this power and key for restoration when we begin to embrace weakness. Restoration actually comes when we embrace weakness. Just like the gospel is a story of good news that comes in spite of our weakness, restoration becomes into the life of a Christian when we can admit and acknowledge and embrace where we are weak. Paul has been dealing with this broken relationship he has with the Corinthians. In verse 1, he says he's going to visit them a third time. Remember, he's written a bunch of letters, 1 Corinthians, and then we have this tearful letter, which we don't have. And then he goes to visit them again, and it's still broken. And he says he wants to commit to a third visit after even writing this third or fourth letter we have, which means Paul's committed to them. Paul's been accused of being deceptive, 
but he's committed to pursuing restoration with them. And he says the key to this is in verse 4. For he was, and he's talking about Christ, crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. That's the thesis, actually, not just of this conclusion, but of his entire letter, that Christ was crucified in weakness. But even though it's weak to the world, it's a display of the power of God. We see today from the eyes of faith that the cross is victory. But we have to remember that the cross has always represented weakness. This is capital punishment. It was meant to torture and shame. It was a brutal representation of defeat, not victory. But Paul says, even though the cross is indeed a picture of weakness, What's really happening through the eyes of faith is not defeat. If you see the cross through faith, it's a display of power because God saves sinners through weakness. He restores us by sending Jesus in our place so we can be cleansed of shame. We can be forgiven of guilt so we can be reconciled to God. And Paul says that this is the power of God, not just true in history, although it is a powerful display of weakness and power of God in history, it's presently at work in us. He repeats this kind of phrase a lot in his writings. And so we kind of miss this because it's just a prepositional phrase, but there's significant power. If you look at verse 4, we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him. This power of God at work in the resurrect, death and resurrection of Jesus is at work now. It's not just in the historical event of the cross. This is true of Christians right now. So when we embrace the weakness of our lives, that's actually when we begin to tap into the strength of God, when we begin to see the power for restoration in our lives. When we are weak and we embrace the weakness of our lives, in faith, we are united to Christ who came as a humble servant. It means we're never alone. It means we begin to walk and live in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It means if we are weak in Christ, we will get a power in Christ. Not just something from get from God. We begin to experience God himself. As we die to ourselves, we begin to experience the power of resurrection today. Most of us don't experience restoration in our lives, I think because we begin to rely on our own strength. So we experience weakness and we throw our lives, our effort, our resources, our intellect, our abilities at it. And instead of beginning to recognize that our weaknesses that God puts in our life are a window into tapping into the power of God as he begins to display his strength in our life. This is something he's been repeating throughout this entire letter again and again and again. Let me just give you one example of this as we look back to chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, he's talking about our bodies, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not given, driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
He's been saying throughout his letter, when we begin to see and embrace that we are broken vessels, we can say we still have treasure on the inside. That the power of God that works despite our brokenness begins to shine through instead of highlighting human effort, ability, and intellect. We are afflicted. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. This is maybe represents the experience of your human life, doesn't it? There are moments of our life where we will experience affliction. We will experience circumstances in our life that we don't have an answer for. We will experience persecution. We will experience being struck down. Yet we can say with reality, with truth, with power, that those experiences don't get the last word. That God gets the last word. His grace in love gets the last word. We see that in the death and resurrection of Christ. God works through all of this. This is good news. But here's the thing, and this is why I don't think we experience restoration. This is why the key for restoration is found in the death and resurrection of Christ. The gospel is good news for weak people. It's for people who admit that there's a brokenness about them, who can admit to themselves that they are weak, that they don't have everything figured out in their life, that no matter how much intellect and resources you throw at it, that you actually need something to save you. The church is also a place for weak people. And this is where the church actually doesn't experience restoration and renewal and light. When we begin to pretend is that everything is fine. That's actually when we begin to push away real life from God. It's when we begin to embrace weakness, embrace vulnerability, begin to share that weakness with other people, begin to see what sin really is, and begin to share that burden with other people that you begin to see God's grace is actually more powerful. We recognize throughout the Gospels, Jesus loves weak people. And our weakness doesn't cause him to cringe or look away from us. He actually runs to us in our weakness. And so why do we pretend in the modern time as if we come to church or we come to our small groups and come to other Christians, everything is fine. When we know that there's brokenness, when we know that there's weakness in our lives. Maybe we don't experience restoration in our spiritual life because we are putting on a good front and we're throwing all our resources at it to make it look really good. But it only lasts so long, doesn't it? Maybe a week like APEC, and then it goes back to the way it is. Real restoration comes when you begin to look at your weakness and say, this is actually true of my life. And it begins to be a window where you depend on Christ where you begin to see that in the midst of that brokenness, that Christ actually can be strong. Remind you again, it's okay to be weak because our God is so strong. The gospel is, is not for people who have their life put all together. It's for people who actually admit that they're broken and in need, that they're sick. And I think this is important because we don't experience what God really wants us to experience when we grit, uh, grit for ourselves and throw our resources at it. And that's the temptation not only of Paul writing to the Corinthians, this is true of San Francisco. Think about how most people identify themselves today by their strength, their success, their status, their image, their zip code. Here's what we need, counterformation, where we begin to embrace weakness in our lives. We begin to experience and admit 
that in the places where we don't have it together, that Christ can actually begin to be strong in our life. We get to embrace weakness. See that trials in our life, and no matter how hard they are, they're difficult, that there are moments where God comes in and begins to form us. When we admit that we have areas of our life that are not put together well, that we begin to experience other people coming into our life and walking with us and become the, the arms and legs and the hands of Jesus to embrace us and help us through. And as we've been going through this, there have been many different stories I begin to see in our church and hearing of people who are experiencing restoration in their life because they begin to embrace their own weakness and see the power of God come in. I've seen people experience physical trials in their life and continue to press on. And that's been encouraging to me because I've been discouraged this past week. I had a knee injury this past week, uh, just lifting weights. And I all of a sudden experienced just this cracking in my knee. And whenever you hear something out loud, it's always a very scary experience, isn't it? Uh, I didn't know what it was. And I knew I just couldn't walk and went to acute care on Thanksgiving day. And I got the best news I think I could have gotten, which is they believe it's a meniscus injury. And I experienced incredible, and I still in wrestling with this disappointment because literally tomorrow I was supposed to start the next cycle of marathon training as I get ready for a marathon in March. And that's really quite frustrating to me and emotionally discouraging to me. But as I've seen people in our church throughout this series, be honest about their physical ailments and difficulties and continue to press on with God, that's, that's given me a lot of hope in seeing how others have embraced physical trials or circumstances where people have experienced a job loss and they're admitting of that and they're not just pretending things are fine and wrestling with that or people who have experienced difficulty in parenting and sharing that with others and struggling with singleness and beginning to actually talk about that and embracing the various levels of weakness in our life, knowing that God is strong in those places where we are weak. This is when we begin to learn how to suffer well. This is much of the Christian life, isn't it? Where we actually learn how to trust God through the classroom of suffering. And when we actually admit that and can embrace weakness, that's when we begin to see that God can actually be strong in those places. We're following a Christ who suffered and was crucified and gave his life for us. This has been transformational for me, not just dealing with my physical challenges, but much of my personality is to hide my weaknesses. In fact, uh, Abe prepared a uh, a stool for me, and my immediate reaction is just to put it away because I want to hide my physical weakness. That's, that's representative of how much I want to actually hide my other weaknesses in my life. This has been challenging for me, this book, that I want to present the best version of myself, where actually there are weaknesses in my life that I need to begin to embrace and talk about in light of Christ. One of the main reasons that I enjoy physical activity in my life is because it begins to help me face all the different things in my life, mental, emotional things that I face. And I, I struggle with discouragement. I struggle with lack of hope at seasons. I mean, think about leading our church throughout different seasons of difficulty or think about this last year and last couple years leading through COVID and helping our church push forward. There are seasons where it's incredibly discouraging. 
And that's why I've enjoyed finding an outlet for all that. But maybe one of the things that God is taking away from me, my physical ability to depend on that is, well, you need to depend on me in this. You need to begin to share this with other people and find that in the places of your weakness that I am more than enough. As Paul was expressing that he has this thorn in his side and as God, he asked God, take this away from me. But God says, no, my, my grace is sufficient. My power will be made perfect in your weakness. That these weaknesses that we have in our life are moments where God begins to do his work of restoration. Maybe you actually aren't experiencing the restoration you should be experiencing in your life because what you're throwing at your weakness is your human effort where maybe you actually need to embrace it in light of Christ and embrace the vulnerability that you are experiencing in your life. That's the key for restoration. It's actually countercultural. It's not something we would expect. It actually means embracing weakness in our life. And if you start to experience that, experience restoration from God by embracing your weakness, you're actually going to see this restore your relationship vertically and restore your relationships horizontally. Re restoring your relationship with God and restore your relationship with others. That's why he goes on to say in verses 5 to 6, it will restore your relationship with God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. Now, this may seem very strong, uh, but as Paul is challenging the Corinthians with regards to their vertical relationship and asking them to examine themselves, remember that he believes that the Corinthians are genuine believers. He refers to them as brothers and saints. He believes that a majority of the church that he planted and people came to faith are genuine followers of Jesus. But he also knows that there are some people there who believe that they are followers of Christ who are not. And this is true because there's so much consistent rampant sin in their church. This must represent that there are some there who profess to follow Jesus, but are actually not genuine followers of Jesus. And this is true of every church in every place and every time. In our church, sitting here right now listening, there are some people who profess to know Jesus who do not know Jesus. That's true of every place and every time. There are those who claim to know Jesus who have no genuine relationship with Jesus. They've been wrapped up in it. Maybe they grew up in it. Maybe this is a ritual. Maybe this is something that they just do, but do not know Jesus. This is why he calls them to examine themselves. To examine themselves is, a, is an opportunity for you to, to look at your life, to see where you really are. And he gives them two options. As you examine yourself and see the weakness of your life, there will be some who will identify and understand if they're honest that they don't really know Jesus. And then there are some who genuinely know Jesus, but actually are not living in light of the real relationship they have with God. So let me just unpack that for a second. There are some in the Corinthian church, and there are some listening right now who need to hear this. You are not genuine followers of Jesus yet. Not yet. This is true, especially of our country. Think about the United States. Just recent research shows that 63% of Americans still say they're Christians. That is a significantly high number of people who say they love Jesus. Would you say that 63% of these professing people know and love the living God? If you ask the genuine 
uh, just average person in the church, what does it mean to be a Christian? Most people give answers that are not biblical at all. And I experienced this once uh, when we were doing interviews and we're about to start that interview process for Camp Tunes, our summer day camp. We asked them uh, how they know that they're a follower of Jesus. And I remember doing a Camp Tunes interview once where this person who was interviewing uh, as a kid uh, and we asked them, how do you know you're a Christian? And they said, well, I follow the golden rule. And I asked them, well, what's the golden rule? And they're like, I have no idea. (laughs) Well, how do you know you're a Christian then? Well, you say you follow the golden rule, which you don't even know what it is. And so yet this, this person had complete confidence that they were a follower of Jesus based upon something that was not true, unbiblical, and to which they couldn't even explain. And so many people are in the church, in churches, in our country, who say they know and follow Jesus, a Jesus they don't even know. And so I think it's very important that when Paul says, examine yourselves, that we get very clear on what it truly means to be a Christian. And this may seem so fundamental in a moment, I'm going to unpack some of the basics, but this is something we have to be explicit about, that we have to be very clear about. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? The centrality of this is the good news. But that good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is the climax of a bigger story that God is working out. And we see this throughout the scriptures. We see this from the very beginning of Genesis. We have a gracious creator who made everything with a purpose. He didn't just set things randomly. He creates with order and purpose. And then he created the world and put Adam and Eve in the garden. He gives them tremendous meaning and purpose in their life. That they take this good creation and this, they turn it into a glorious kingdom. That's their purpose. But we know if you've read through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that by the time you get to Genesis 3, even though everything was good, very good, sin enters the story. And sin isn't just that we do bad things or don't do good things. Because we have to understand this in relationship to God. We were made, Adam and Eve were made to have a perfect relationship with God, to find their complete being and satisfaction in God, to find their purpose in God. And so sin is to find your identity, to find your purpose, to find your satisfaction in something not in God, but in creation or in yourself. That's why throughout the scriptures, you see sin is described as spiritual adultery or idolatry. It's to reject God as the center of your life and to find purpose and satisfaction in something else. And we all know what that looks like if we're followers of Jesus. When we came to Christ, we know we were centering our identity, our satisfaction and purpose in something, not God. And when we do that, it shatters our relationship with God and it shatters everything in creation. But even though Adam and Eve rejected God, how did God respond to this rejection? Yes, he was holy. And so he kicked them out of the garden. There was a curse. And so this is an expression of his holiness against sin. But how else does he respond? He responds with a promise of compassion and mercy that there will be someone from Eve who will come back and restore all of creation and all the people who are his with him. And then you see throughout the Old Testament that God expresses a a continual choosing of weakness as he works out his way in this world. He chooses Israel, who was not so powerful, not so intelligent, not so militaristically advanced, but they were the weakest of all the nations to display his power. 
He chooses them not to exclude all the nations of the world, but for the sake of all the nations of the world. That in their weakness, as they were drawn to this powerful God, that they would represent who God really is. But Israel, as you see in the Old Testament, fails in this over and over and over. That's basically the entire Old Testament there. But God keeps his promise, even though Israel does not. Jesus eventually comes to the line of David, his promised king, his promised seed all the way back in Genesis 3. Jesus comes and proclaims the kingdom of God. He brings all of that through a countercultural way. Because this king comes not to reign and rule like the kings of the earth. He comes to be a servant. He rules by serving. He doesn't punish his enemies but dies on their behalf because of his self-giving love. And he doesn't just die. He rises conquering sin and death in his resurrection. And he begins to establish his kingdom through his church. And that's happening again and again and again all over the world today. To be a Christian is to believe that gospel and respond to it in our lives. One passage you can turn to if you want a summary of this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace. We don't earn it any other way. We don't earn it by our works. We don't earn it by doing good things. We can't work our way into a relationship with God. It's all grace. But this grace doesn't mean there's no response in our life. This grace changes us, transforms us. That's why it says in verse 10, we are his workmanship created for good works. If we know him, we will see it in our life. We will see it by the fruit of our life. That's the summary of what it means to be a Christian and to live as a Christian. If you want to know if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, you trust, you've surrendered your life to that good news, and you begin to see fruit in your life that represents Jesus is alive in you. That's how you know. And that's the question I think Paul wants us to ask ourselves, even though we're not the Corinthians, as you examine yourself, are you someone who's truly been restored to God? Do you believe this? And do you see fruit in your life? That's a real question that we have to ask. If you've never asked yourself that question before, it's a very scary place to be because I think genuine followers of Jesus eventually wrestle with some of those difficult questions. Maybe, maybe you've asked this question before too. Can I lose my salvation? Maybe you've asked yourself that question before. Uh, whenever someone asks that question of me, especially youth had this question all the time, uh, my answer always to them was, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Because we would. If it was dependent on us, we would lose it. All of us would lose it. Because that's our sinful nature. We're prone to sin. If it was dependent on us, we would. But it's not dependent on us. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, that God finishes what he starts. He will complete it until the end. Right? If you ask yourself, how do you know you're a genuine Christian? And your answer to that is... Well, I try, I try to go to church, I try and be a good person, I try and read the Bible, I try and pray. If that's the kind of answer you have, your relationship to God is based upon your performance. And you might not actually know this grace. It depends then. If your answer is, well, how do you know if you're a Christian? And you, it's based upon all these things that you've done or haven't done. It just changes based upon the day. 
let me remind you of this gospel. It's not anchored in what you have done. And it's anchored entirely on what God has done in being faithful for you throughout all of history. His grace is the only reason we have salvation. His grace is the only reason we have any kind of change in our life. His grace is constant, steady, faithful, and never-ending. That's why those who are his never lose their salvation. But maybe you're here and you aren't yet a follower of Jesus. Maybe this question actually raises your conscience to see that. Know that there's grace today. Maybe today is that day where you will realize and you will admit your weakness. Maybe even admit, I've been pretending for so long. And that's when you begin to find restoration in life. You begin to admit, I've done all these things to look the part of a follower of Jesus, and yet I've never known him. Today could be that day of salvation. And I pray that is true of you today, if that's where you find yourself. Paul not only says there are some there who are not followers of Jesus, he also says that there are some there who don't realize who they are. And I think this is so true of so many in the church. You are actually a genuine follower of Jesus. You believe in grace. You see some fruit in your life, but then you live as if you have to live on your own. You don't tap into the power of God. You don't tap into the grace of God. You've forgotten who you are. And maybe this is the reminder you need today. You've trusted in him. You are made new. You are not who you used to be. You are not defined by your past. You are not defined by your weakness. You are defined by the death and resurrection of Christ. Your sin has been forgiven. Your old self is being made into a new self. Jesus lives in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that made everything in this world out of nothing indwells you. Maybe you've forgotten that. You know, when you are in Christ, the Father sings over you. So many of us, we have this relationship with God where we're distant with him because we believe because of our sin that he doesn't want to draw near to us. No! Your father sings over you. And so when you do sin, you have the freedom to confess because he will always love. Because that love was not based upon what you did or didn't do. It's based upon Jesus. He sings over you. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you have not experienced restoration in your life and freedom in your life, maybe it's because you've forgotten who you are. You have forgiveness, redemption, healing. You have a new family, a new renewed purpose. Paul says in verse 9 here, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Maybe you're here today. And you've wandered from Jesus. I want you to know that the grace of God is reaching out to you. Maybe you've experienced hurt in some experience, maybe in our church, maybe in a past church, and your heart is callous towards God and you've been distant from God. Maybe you've run from God. Maybe you've chosen to ignore God. I pray, as Paul prays here, that you will be restored. Maybe you feel far because in your weakness, you think that it actually keeps God away from you. And it's the very opposite. It's in your weakness when you admit it and bring it to God. All who are weary and heavy laden, as you bring it to God, he will give you rest. This is the God who runs to you in your weakness. It's not a barrier between you and God. No, he loves you in your weakness. 
And so don't hide from him. Don't avoid him. Bring that weakness to God and let him restore you in grace. Not only does this restoration restore our relationship vertically, it also begins to restore us horizontally. He says this at the end of this section, verses 11 to 13. Finally, brothers rejoice. Aim for restoration. He kind of begins to list off a bunch of relational impact. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. These are all relational statements and commands. Because if you're restored to God, you will see that bear fruit in your restoration with other people. He says that they're brothers, they're family. This is something very important for the church to begin to embrace and understand. That while we have biological family and there's a responsibility to our biological family, our greatest family actually is found here because of the blood of Jesus. And the struggle of the modern church and our individualism is that we don't embrace the fact that this blood of Jesus unites us where we actually are family. Much deeper than the biological one. Because this is the blood of Christ, that we're family, that we begin to care for each other. Where there's weakness in the church, it actually is something that we are obligated to begin to care about in our church. They're brothers. He says rejoice. Even though we don't think of Corinthians as a book about joy, he repeats joy a lot, at least 11 times in my count this past week. He talked about in chapter 6, he's sorrowful but always rejoicing. He's afflicted but overflowing with joy in chapter 7. I think one of the ways we begin to see restoration in a relational way is when we rejoice to encourage each other, to acknowledge God's grace in our presence, to choose to worship together, to sing about God's grace despite the things that are going on in our life. That's why it's important that we sing. Do you realize when you sing out loud, you are actually doing relational work because you are encouraging the brother and sisters who are next to you? Because we all know we come in with areas of our life that are weak, but we're still able to depend and sing to God and those voices lifted up cause a restoration. He says, aim for restoration. This is a hard work. This is hard. It means there's going to be need for confession and forgiveness, rebuilding of trust. It means leaning into people who you have a broken relationship with. To not just wait for them, but you pursue them. In our culture today, we just cancel people. When someone hurts you, you just basically ignore them and move on. But God calls us to do this work of restoration because if we've been restored to him, even in our weakness, that we will in our weakness pursue others. Think about this relationship that Paul has with the Corinthians. If I was the pastor of the Corinthian church, I probably would have quit a long time ago. He's going to continue to visit them again and again and again and again as long as he can. Aim for restoration. He says, comfort one another. Everyone hurts. We're all dealing with something. If you see the restoration of God at work in a church, you will see it because people in the church comfort one another. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And we, I think because we read this and we say, well, we're not going to do that. We just kind of move on. But I think there's something very powerful about this if you get into it. This is something we have to grasp. First of all, they didn't kiss everyone. They really only kissed people who were family in their culture. And think about that. 
this is again a reminder that despite that they're not biological family, that they're actually family. But this is also about hospitality. This is about a welcoming. I think what Paul says in Romans chapter 15, welcome one another, is what he's saying here. And here's why it's important that he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. They're a broken bunch. They have sin in their midst. But as they're restored to Christ and they embody that with one another, they don't wait for each other to get perfect before they treat each other like family. Because Christ didn't come to us to shame us. He was patient. He welcomed us. He invites us all who are broken. And so that same expression is what we extend to one another. That we welcome one another. That we're hospitable. That we're open to each other even when there's brokenness. Right? They didn't greet each other, everyone, with kissing. They, they did with family. And so I think this is applicable to us. We are family. And we begin to welcome one another. We begin to express that to each other and reflect the love of Christ. I know you're sitting with a, at least a couple hundred people you probably don't know very well. But if you are in Christ, you are a family. You are a family that's been restored because of the blood of Jesus. And we have an obligation to one another in this family. It doesn't mean we're going to know each other all very deeply, but we're called to live as family, to stick it out through tough times, to welcome one another, to speak the truth in love. When there's a wandering in sin, we, we lovingly, gently speak the truth in love. When, when there's a family member who's struggling, we come alongside them and embrace them. This restoration is sweeping in the church as he proclaims in these last few verses. It's supposed to bring us back. I think one of the reasons that we don't experience this relationally in our church is either one, when there's a brokenness and a weakness and a, like a broken relationship, we either just never talk to them again because it's too painful or we just get so used to pretending everything is fine so there's actually no recognition that we're weak people. And so we don't experience the restoration that God calls us to. We end with this last verse, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's a powerful benediction that's anchored in the Trinity. One God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is important that we see that he ends in this. He, he created us not because he was lonely. And if he exists as eternally Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he was always love. That's why you can say God is love because he experienced love eternally. It's out of the abundance of his love that he creates us. It's a reference to the Trinity here and this amazing grace and fellowship, not just as a theological statement. I think we tend to think about the Trinity in a theological category alone, but this is experiential. He ends in this way because if you want to experience the fullness of restoration, you get to experience God himself. You are brought into this Trinity. You are brought into this perfect relationship that we were created to have since the very beginning. The same love that the Father has for the Son and for the Spirit that he has always had is what we are brought into. And so that's an amazing way to end this letter with this good word. And I just want to ask that you would just receive that. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 
be with you all. That is the power of restoration here in the work of God. I pray that we would experience restoration in our lives, restoration in our church, because that's what our world longs to see, a restoration. Let's pray. Father, would you do that work? Would your spirit bring about faith today? Maybe there's a young person who has been brought to church by their family for a long time and has never actually owned this faith. Would they believe today? Father, maybe there's someone who's been in church for 50 years and yet has been doing religious performance. I pray that you would give them the humility to embrace even that weakness. All their good, all their attendance, all that effort, while not bad, is not the anchor of their salvation. It's only found in you. Would you bring about faith today? Father, would you restore us to one another? Where there is brokenness in our church, Father, would you do the work of restoring relationships? Father, would you send us out into this city embracing weakness so that the world may see that you are strong. Fathers, I pray for our city in all the different ways that people think that it will be renewed or restored through human effort and ability and, and money and resources. Father, we know that restoration comes from you. Father, I pray that the church would be the glimpse of that, a city on a hill. Would you use Sunset Church in that way? to reflect in our part of this city what it means to embrace weakness because in our weakness we see that you are strong, restoring us to you and to one another. We trust that you are doing that work. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.